Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey everybody, how's it going? We had an issue with the sound on our live stream on Sunday for like the first three minutes. And so this sounds more like me talking in the office on a Monday than me talking on the stage on a Sunday. That's because it is, but we're doing a little bit of audio fixing. Here's the first three minutes that we missed. Kicked off with a story. When I was like 11 years old, I was having a Nerf war with my neighbor Jason and I fired an errant shot that must have been like perfectly, if unluckily placed, cause it knocked one of my mom's Isabel Bloom figurines off the mantle above our fireplace. And I don't know if, if you're familiar with Isabel Bloom or not. I think there's a store in Valley Junction, but there's these little sculptures made out of concrete and they were a big deal in the Quad Cities where we grew up because Isabel Bloom was from Davenport and her art studio was headquartered there. And so my mom loved them. But anyways, as you can probably imagine, falling five feet onto a brick fireplace did not do great things for concrete. So standing there with a sculpture in many parts and my brilliant 11 year old brain decided the best possible solution was just to fix it real quick instead of telling my mom. So grab some super glue, laid out all the pieces and got to work. Shockingly though, it didn't quite go the way I pictured in my mind. For starters, the pieces didn't quite match because there were little shards missing and that would have been bad enough, but also the super glue got over everything. Like the sculpture, my hands, the counter. And at one point I was furiously scraping super glue off the counter with my right hand. I rested my left hand on a piece of sculpture just long enough for it to get stuck. And it was a little shocking when I picked it up and my hand was glued to part of an Isabel Bloom. And I looked at my buddy Jason, he looked at me, we both freaked out a little like, what are we gonna do now? I thought about maybe just leaving it, waiting until my mom got home and then telling her, hey mom, you know how You've been hoping I get less into Nintendo and more into arts and crafts? Well, big news, Merry Christmas. But that wasn't gonna work. And so Jason ran home and told his mom a half truth that we had a little super glue on our hands and we wanted to get it off. She gave him some nail polish remover, which eventually loosened things up enough to do the trick. My fingers still had like the stupid hard glue stuff on them, but they were free. The statue was a disaster though, which meant ultimately I had to confess to my mom. I tried to put a good spin on it, I told her, hey mom, you know how you love getting new Isabel Bloom sculptures? Well, today's your lucky day. I turned your one old sculpture into five brand new sculptures. She wasn't having it, was not excited about that at all. And so one thing I learned is to just not do the super glue thing anymore. I dropped a pot at the office last summer. I didn't even try to fix it. I just slapped a label on it that said not broken. So now nobody knows. They're like, is that broken? No, it says it's not. So, <laughs> But ultimately, like what I learned in this whole fiasco is this. When you're facing a mess too big for you to fix, you pretty much have two options. Number one, you can try to fix it. There's nearly a 100% chance you'll make everything worse and end up with an even bigger mess on your hands, but trying to fix it is a choice that's available to you. Or number two, you can trust somebody else to fix what you can't. I know some of you right now are thinking, okay, that 
tracks, but what does this have to do with Christmas? I thought we were starting a Christmas series today. Are we not talking about Christmas? And the answer is we are. This has everything to do with Christmas. We're kicking off a brand new Christmas series this morning called The Promise of Peace. And what we're going to find is the story of humanity dealing with a mess that's simply too big for us to fix. We're actually going to check in this morning on some people dealing with a mess that they, they couldn't fix on their own, trying to figure out what it looked like to move forward. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it over to the book of Genesis, chapter 4. We're going to start at the beginning of the Christmas story today. And if you're going, the Christmas story is in Matthew and Luke, not Genesis, you're right Sort of. That's the narrative we call the Christmas story. It's the moment Jesus broke into our story here on earth, that the angels exploded into the night sky and proclaimed peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the promise of peace, the promise that God was intimately involved in the mess humanity made, actually goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to the foundation of the world and the brokenness that was ushered in. Just a little quick background on Genesis 4. Even if you didn't grow up in or around church, most of us are at least familiar with the story up to that point. God created Adam and Eve in his image to be his representatives in creation, but then they decided to turn their backs on him, reject him, and chart their own course. And in doing that, they ruptured the relationship between the Creator and all of creation, and they ushered sin and all of its devastating power, consequences, and effects into the universe. And what we read in Genesis 4 is the beginnings of humanity trying to figure out how to deal with the mess they made. This is what it says, starting in verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. I want to stop here for just a second because I think this is easy to kind of gloss over and there's something we lose in translation but what Eve said is a little bit shocking especially in the Hebrew she proclaims I have brought forth a man or, or some translations say I have gotten or, or I have acquired a man and here's what's important to recognize the emphasis in this declaration is on her effort and to be fair, she throws God a bone. She says, I, I did it with the help of the Lord. But basically, she's proclaiming, God may have had a little bit of a role in this, but he wasn't necessary. I, I kind of did it all on my own. Eve's got some major main character energy going on right here. She holds up this baby boy, and she goes like full Pete Weber on it. She's like, I did it. Who do you think you are? I am. That's for all the professional bowling fans out there. But like, Eve, Eve is like, look... God is not necessary to this whole thing. I did it. I did it all by myself. And she does something in this moment that I think all of us are prone to do. Because of our ego and because of our sin, we are constantly tempted to acknowledge God's presence without acknowledging our dependence. And the problem with that for Eve and for us is when we live like that, that attitude leaks. And ultimately, she passes it down to the son that she had born. This is what verse 2 says. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And this is another simple verse that I think it's easy to gloss over. And I don't want to make more of it than what's there. But the descriptions of what they did kind of stopped me in my tracks this week. And so I did some study. And there are a lot of scholars who say it's, it's purposeful. The words that 
are used. We read that Abel kept flocks. The Hebrew word is ra'ah, shepherded, looked after. And Cain worked the soil. The word is avad, labored, toiled, served. And it's not that either description is out of place here, but I think they tell us just a little bit more than what these guys did vocationally. The idea that, that Abel kept the flocks is an idea that Abel stewarded something he understood was completely a gift from God that ultimately didn't belong to him. It belonged to the giver. Cain, on the other hand, worked, toiled. He hit the grind in the service of his own glory. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with work. A couple months ago, we talked about the importance of work and the beauty of work, about how part of what it means to be the representatives of the Creator and creation is to do work that adds value to people and creates a better future for the world. So please don't hear me saying there's anything wrong with great effort that achieves great things. There's not. Every single one of us was made to do that. But there's a danger, as we do, that we'll come to believe it's all for us and all about us and all done by us. That's kind of where Cain lands, that God is there and God is present, but God's not needed, that God's near, but God's not necessary. It's really easy to get to a spot where we acknowledge God's presence, but not our dependence. And we know that happened to Cain because of what we read in verse 3. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. All right, we read that God loves Abel's offering. He accepts it as worshipful and honoring, and Cain's offering, no such luck. And the question is, why? Well, at first glance, it kind of seems like God likes Abel's offering better because steak and bacon are better than celery and Brussels sprouts. That's what I thought when I read it as a kid, and I was like, God, I'm with you, Team Abel, all the way, man. And I get it. There are some of you who are vegans or vegetarians, and you're telling me, Mike, you just don't understand. You haven't, you haven't eaten the right stuff. A filet mignon has nothing on a perfectly plated bowl of, of spinach and kale. And uh, I'm happy for you. You're going to live longer than me, but I don't want to live longer if I got to trade beef for broccoli. It just is. Anyways, that's not the point of this passage. It's not what's going on. It gives us a description of... of why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. What it says is that Abel brought the fat portions of the firstborn and Cain brought some. Those are not the same thing. I mean, for starters, the fat portions is, is the good stuff. As Guy Fieri has been teaching us for years, fat equals flavor. And so when Abel showed up with an offering, he brought, like, he brought the ribeye and not the skirt steak. And not just that, he brought the firstborn, which is a huge deal in the ancient world. Because back then, especially if you gave your firstborn sheep or your firstborn goat, your firstborn calf to God, you didn't know what else was coming. Like maybe you just gave God 100% of the animals that were going to be born that year. Maybe one or two more would be born, and you just, you just offered to God 30%, 50%, something like that. It's different than waiting till the very end and then giving to God out of our access. When you bring the firstborn, you're saying, God, I, I, 
I don't know. I don't know what the rest looks like, but I trust you. I trust you completely because you promised to provide. And so I'm giving this to you because I know I need to orient my heart to not trust myself or my stuff, but to trust you completely. I think for us, that's a difficult thing to do. Even if we want to be givers and we want to be generous, like I want to be a tither, we often do what Cain did. We wait till the end and see what we've got and keep what we need and then give to God out of our excess. That's what the Bible's telling us when it says Cain brought some. And the question it begs is, why even make that offering at all then? If you, if you were just going to give to God out of the extras that you had, why bring him anything? And I think the answer is Cain's doing the exact same thing Eve did. He's acknowledging that God is there without creating space for him to be dependent on God as necessary. He's like checking the religious box and, oh, okay, God, I, I like I get it, and I don't, I don't want to be on your bad side, so I'll, I'll give you a little out of what I don't want or what I don't need. He, he gives God something I call a, a God nod. He's like, all right, you know, I don't need you, but like you're there. And my question for all of us this morning is, how often are we performing a God nod? How often is like the way we do faith and the way we do community and the way we give and the way we serve and the way we love just bringing some? Like, God, I'll give you some of my time and some of my love and some of my talent and some of my resources, but just some. I want to check that box, but that's, that's really all I'm doing here. I think it's a whole lot easier to do than we realize sometimes. What we, what we come to see in Genesis 4 is that it's natural. Our ego leads us to that spot. But it's deadly and destructive. It causes us to settle for less. Abel's offering is a statement of faith, and Cain's isn't, which cuts Cain off from the beauty and the story God's trying to write in his life. And this isn't just my take. Hebrews 11.4 says it explicitly as it lists Abel among the heroes of the faith. He was orienting his heart toward God, and Cain wasn't. And the thing is, like, it does something wildly different to our souls to trust God or to not trust God. Like, acknowledging God's presence is not the same thing as acknowledging our dependence. Acknowledging that God's real isn't the same thing as trusting God. You know how I know that? I acknowledge the federal government of the United States. I jump through their hoops, I check their boxes, I pay their taxes, it exists, but do I trust the federal government? <laughs> Am I put my hope in the federal government? And I'm not saying politics don't matter and elections don't have consequences, they do. But if your hope is in our government or any government to save the world, you're going to be sadly disappointed. It's just not going to happen. But so many people in our world are in that spot. They're putting their hope in, in human individuals. Like if we could just get that guy elected or human institutions, if we could make that law, if that company could develop that product or they're putting their faith in themselves, if I could just accomplish this, if I could make this much money, then everything's going to be okay. We're so prone as human beings to put our faith in ourselves rather than God, to take the mess that's in front of us and think, I can fix this all on my own. But it doesn't work. And when Cain got confronted with that, 
He had an opportunity to repent. He had an opportunity to say, you know what, God, I have been just given a God nod. I've been messing it up, but this might be too big for me to fix on my own. But his ego wouldn't let him do it. His pride got in the way. And so he got angry. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So God's like, yo, Cain, part of your problem is you're just seeing things wrongly. If you can shift your thinking, if you can release your pride a little bit, if you can admit your need for me, everything's going to go better. But if not, like sin is, is crouching at your door like a hungry tiger on the hunt, just waiting for you to walk outside so it can attack and devour you. I think sometimes life would go better if God reminded us of that frequently, that sin is crouching like a hungry tiger on the hunt. Because we forget on occasion that sin isn't just a thing we do, it's a power that consumes and affects us. And if we're not careful, it will eat us alive and destroy us completely. And we know that. We've seen it happen. We've seen people that we love completely ruined by sin. And some of us have have ruined our own lives. We haven't just been affected by the sin of other people. We've made choices that destroyed the future we once thought we had. We know that sin is destructive. So what do we do about it? How do we avoid that evil power that's lurking and seeking to devour us? Well, the answer is in God's statement to Cain. He looks at Cain and says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You got to figure out how to dominate and capture that fearsome tiger that's trying to capture you which is actually a little bit easier than it seems like, okay? Have any of you ever caught a tiger with your bare hands? Bunch of Midwesterners and two liars. But <laughs> actually just watched a movie about this, okay? This is, if you are working in the mangrove forests in Indonesia and you notice that a Bengal tiger is stalking you, all right, this is how you capture it with your bare hands. You don't. You run for your life. Unless you're in a helicopter with a tranquilizer dart, you hide and you just pray it cannot find you because you can't capture it, you can't defeat it, and you can't beat it. That's not how tigers work. I actually did watch a whole movie about it. There's these these women called the, the tiger widows. The Bengals just hunt people down. You can't beat them. That's what God's actually saying. This is a wildly sarcastic moment by God. When he's like, hey, Cain, Hey, sin is like, a, it's like a tiger that's hungry for you. You're going to have to figure out how to wrestle that bad boy. What God is saying is, you can't, you can't do it, man. It's, it's not going to work well for you. Your attempt to beat sin all by yourself is going to go just about as well as your attempt to wrestle a hungry tiger. You're going to lose, man. I know you think you got this, but you don't got this. Isn't that the whole story of the human race? I know you think you got this, but you don't got this. And the beauty of the Christmas story is you don't got to got this. God's got this for you if you will just let him, if you will trust that he can fix the mess that you can't fix on your own. But Cain's having none of it. He doesn't want God to fix it for him. He wants to do it himself. And so instead of trusting God, he comes up with his own brilliant plan. And Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, 
Where's your brother Abel? Another sarcastic moment by God. He knows. Well, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Notice at this point there's a progression. Cain has gone from reluctantly acknowledging God, from at least giving a God nod, to openly rebelling against God, to even resentfully answering God. When he's like, leave me alone, that's not my problem. He's like angry at God, and then God responds, says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer in the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain got even worse, all right? This guy is a murderer who killed his brother and lied about it, and now he looks at God and he's like, that's not a fair punishment. How dare you? How dare you tell me that I have to leave the land that I killed my brother on, and it's going to be hard for me. This isn't fair. You're being a jerk. And it seems utterly ridiculous, but let me throw this out there before we start judging Cain. We do the exact same thing. All of us. Regularly. See, sin doesn't just make us guilty, it makes us gullible. It has this incredible way of blinding us to the choices we've made and the consequences we must suffer because of them, and creating space for us to blame everybody else for those. Like, well, yeah, I'm not perfect. I'll confess I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm trying really hard. And so that means, like, if, if I did that, if I thought that, if I made that happen, if I caused that, it's not, it's my, it's not my fault. It's, it's because he, it's because she, it's because they, 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 they made me. So we live with this idea that, that it's never really our, our own fault. The choices we made are because someone else made us make those choices. And the consequences we're suffering aren't really fair to us because we're too good and too great to be suffering these consequences. I talk to my kids about this all the time, that reliability and responsibility are not the same thing. They're synonymous, but they're not the same. It's great to be a reliable person, to show up on time and get things done on time. But if you can't be responsible, if every hiccup, if every bump in the road, if every mistake is never your fault because it's somebody else's fault, because this is my parents' fault, it's my husband's fault, it's my wife's fault, it's my kid's fault, it's my boss's fault, it's my coworker's fault, it's because I was hungry, it's because I was really tired, that's why it happened. It's, 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 it's like sin blinds us to our own responsibility. This is like the heartbeat of the human problem. We want to believe that we know better than God. We want to stand and declare, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'll chart my own course. That's the heartbeat of every bit of rebellion that lives inside of us. And yet, when it goes badly, we're like, I'm not the captain of my soul. I'm not the master. I didn't chart this course. It's everyone else's fault. All the good stuff in my life is because I'm brilliant, and all the bad stuff is because everyone else stinks. Like, sin doesn't just make us guilty. It makes us gullible to this belief that, that we're not responsible for the things that we chose to do, and that we are responsible to fix the mess all on our own. And it creates this vicious cycle that robs us of beauty and robs us of life. And ultimately, in Cain and Abel, we see two different approaches to sin. And to be fair, the mess of sin wasn't something they created. They inherited it from their parents, and so do we. Like, we live 
in a sin-shattered universe that we take part in. We're dealing with a problem we inherited but also contributed to. And so the question is, what do we do with that? I think we got two options. We can try our way out like Cain or we can trust our way out like Abel. Only one of those leaves us with the life equivalent of cement superglued to our fingers. It's a huge mass. If you don't know the rest of the story, let me fill you in real quick. God extends incredible grace and mercy to Cain. He deserves to die because he's a murderer. And he complains that the consequences aren't fair. And God says, hey, I'm going to grant you long life. I'm going to put a hedge of protection around you so that this isn't the end of your story, man. And in response to that, Cain just leaves. There's not so much as a word of thank you to God or an acknowledgement that God fixed a mess Cain couldn't. He just walks out the door and continues fighting and striving and achieving. And over the next few chapters in Genesis, we read about his kids. He has a whole bunch of them. And we read their list of accomplishments. They invented and they built and they did some amazing things, but there's not so much as a mention of the name of God. In fact, when God shows up in their story again, the whole world is full of violence, evil, hatred, murder, and the complete dehumanization of the human race. Cain tried to handle his sin problem on his own, and it devoured him. Abel, on the other hand, well, he's dead. So you could argue, well, trusting didn't work out that good for Abel either. But this isn't actually the end of his story or his legacy. I mean, he shows up in Hebrews 11 in the list of like the heroes of the faith. And this is why his legacy lives on. If we fast forward in Genesis 4 down to verse 25, it says, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. You notice the dramatic shift in her attitude? God granted me. This son is a gift from a good and generous giver. That's what the name Seth means in Hebrew. It means granted. And so Eve gives this kid a name that will remind him every time she looks at him, will remind her that God provides and that God fixes messes that she can't fix on her own. And the legacy of this son that was given to Eve as a replacement for Abel is a legacy of God providing good gifts. Because Seth followed in Abel's footsteps and remembered his dependence on God. And then Noah came from the line of Seth. Which means even in a time of great darkness, someone, Seth's great-great-great-grandson, remembered the goodness of God. And then Abraham and David came from the line of Seth. And ultimately, this girl named Mary, who lived with a deep, open-handed dependence on God and a trust that what he wanted to do in and through her life was the best possible story she could live. And through Mary, God gave humanity the greatest gift he's ever given himself, his presence on a kamikaze mission to reconcile what we had wrecked. One of my favorite parts of the Christmas story every year is like Joseph. Because I just try and put myself in his shoes I read it and I try to imagine what it would have been like to be him and hear like, hey dude, your virgin fiance is pregnant, but it's God's. Don't worry about it. (laughs) That'd be a tough pill to swallow. That'd be a moment where an angel would have to show up and give you a message that she wasn't kidding. And that's exactly what happens 
in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Oh, you guys, right here in this Christmas verse is the fulfillment of Abel's hope. Cain gave a God nod and said, I'll do it on my own, and it ruined him. Abel said, my first and my best, because this is a mess too big for me to fix on my own. Enslaved to sin, he chose to believe that God's love was too wide and too great and too deep and too powerful to leave us languishing without a Savior. Abel didn't know when it was going to come, but he knew that as soon as the world was broken, God had made a promise of peace. God said, I'm going to fix it. Hope is real because I'm going to do for you what you can't do on your own. And then Jesus broke in and that's exactly what God did. At Christmas, he kept that promise. And as a promise is alive for every single one of us, if we will quit striving and quit trying and quit believing that we can fix the mess all on our own and simply trust that what Jesus did when he died and rose again counts for us. We'll find peace in the middle of a broken world. We'll find hope in the middle of a hopeless world. We'll find light in the middle of a dark world. We'll find meaning in the middle of a lost world. Because eternity invaded history at Christmas, God stepped in to be with us, and that changes the game entirely. And all we got to do is believe. And if you haven't done it this morning, you can. It's free, monetarily. It costs you your entire life, but all you got to do is believe and surrender. And so my challenge to you as we kick off this Christmas season, like as we approach Christmas this year, my, my challenge to everyone in the room is to ask yourself genuinely this question. Who do I trust? Like really stop and, and think about it. Who do, who do I trust? Like where's my hope located? What do I really believe? That God is present or, or that God is necessary? I know it's really easy to give the, the churchy answers. Well, I trust Jesus. But is it that for you? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting some leader somewhere? Are you trusting some institution? Are you trusting your bank account? What is it that you really are banking your life on? Are you trying your way back to God like Cain? Are you bringing some? Like, all right, all right, God, I'll, I'll give you some. I'll give you some of my time, some of my finances, some of my love, some of my affection, some of my passion, some of my calendar, some. Because I'm looking at these broken pieces and I'm pretty sure I can super glue them back together. Or, or are you coming to God with open hands like Abel and saying, I can't fix this mess, but I know that you're the one who can fix it for me. Like, I think if we keep trying our way forward, ultimately, that tiger is going to hunt us down and devour us. But if we just trust, what we'll find is that God kept his promise of peace. It's real. It's here. It's now. And our God is at work setting all things right and making all things new. We can trust that with our lives. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you for being trustworthy. Thank you for your promise of peace. Thank you for being the one who fixes the messes we cannot fix. Lord, we confess every last one of us in here has messes in our life, messes in the lives of the people around us. And there's something in us that's tempted to try super gluing them back together. There's something in us that's tempted to go it alone, to, to do a God nod, but then 
rely completely on ourselves, like you're not actually there and you don't actually exist. Lord, would you kill that temptation in us? Would you help us come to you with open hands and empty hands in the spirit of Abel and not the spirit of Cain, trusting that you are who you promise us you are and you can do what you promise us you'll do. Lord, we can't try our way out of this, so please let us trust our way out. Thank you for being a trustworthy God who made us a promise of peace and kept that promise and continues to keep it today. Let us be a people who so live into that that it not only changes our lives and rewrites our future as we trust you, but it leaks from us all over a desperate and hopeless world around us and points them toward you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.